0: Let me invite us into worship with these words from Psalm 34 today. Open your mouth and taste. Open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who run to him. Worship God if you want the best. Worship opens doors to all of God's goodness. Young lions on the prowl get hungry, but God's seekers are full of God. May we be God's seekers today who are full of the spirit of God in this place. Let's pray together, shall we? We come into this place today, Lord, and we're hungry. We're hungry for comfort and for love and for new ways of living, and we're hungry to hear your word. So thank you for giving us this place and this time to worship. We're eager to taste your goodness in community with our brothers and sisters who are here. So bless us as we worship you in this time together, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Last week we began a new teaching series for the month of January called Fresh Start. I hope you'll be here for the rest of the series and begin to think about and implement some new attitudes and actions that will help us each to get off to a fresh start in our life as we begin a new year together. We're also sharing Holy Communion together this morning and so I pray that in this process of all the things that we do today, you will truly have open mind and an open heart as we worship God together. I wanna share uh, just a a moment of um, interest uh, to the congregation. A week ago, um, Friday or Thursday or Friday, uh, all the major news outlets in this country broke the story that the United Methodist Church uh, was proposing to divide. I don't know if you saw the story, but I looked at some of the news stories and some of them had the United Methodist Church already uh, divided up into several different groups. Others talked about it being a proposal, but it is it is that it is a proposal at this point um, uh, to accommodate the forty year long tension that has existed between two primary groups within the United Methodist Church, and one being the traditionalists, those who want to keep the current theological stance of the church, of Scripture, particularly as it relates to issues of same-sex marriage and ordination of gay clergy. And then the other group is the progressives who have been wanting to change what has been the guiding principles of um, a couple hundred years of United Methodism and allow openly gay clergy to be appointed to local churches and allow same-sex marriages to be performed in our churches. So uh, now that these arguments have uh, have been uh, going on for many, many years and uh, all the um, argument around these particular uh, issues uh, are more complicated than that, but that's kind of the simple version and it's been going on since at least 1972. But this latest proposal is just that. It is a proposal that will be voted on by all United Methodists at General Conference in May. And I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I know that our staff and our leadership will be in discussion about uh, all of this in the months ahead and we will keep you informed with what we know. And we continue to talk with other pastors, other churches, see how other congregations are responding as well, but I want to minimize the distraction that this can be, and assure you that we're gonna continue to serve God and serve this community as we have done as a church for about 150 years in this community. So, but if you do have questions and you do have concerns, I would love to talk with you about that. Um, Rather than uh, uh, addressing a variety of staff members here, I'm encouraging you to talk to Pastor Tim or to myself And uh, we'll be happy to talk with you uh, about what we know and what we don't know at this point. And uh, as we move forward in this process, as I said, we'll keep you um, informed. Let's bow in a moment of prayer together. Sovereign God, who visited this planet in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, renew within us today the sense of your presence with us. We give thanks for your love and grace that is extended to us so freely and we are grateful for your merciful provision for all of our needs we join together at the edge of this new year to worship you to celebrate holy communion together remembering that you have entered into a covenant with us and as we receive the gifts of jesus christ our lives will never be the same so help us to live fully into this moment this day and it's in christ's name we pray amen This month, we are talking about starting over, or giving ourselves a fresh start at life, or maybe at least a new beginning at something we feel like we've not done so well at in the past. We want to make sure that this time, we can do better than last time. We seem to learn from our mistakes in some of the areas of our life that really don't matter all that much, like texting, or games, or hobbies, but we repeat our mistakes in the areas of our life that matter most in our finances, in our jobs, in our health, in our relationships. Last week we learned that to start over and do things differently and better in any area of our life, we need to reject three myths that we hold on to myths that really don't help us. And the first myth was experience makes us wiser, experience alone doesn't make us wiser, it just simply makes us older. If It is evaluated experience that makes us wiser. Only as we understand our experience and evaluate it and learn from it do we become wiser. But the second myth we need to reject is, since I know better, I will do better. Well, just knowing right from wrong doesn't mean we have the discipline or the desire to do what's right. We need to learn how to do things differently so we can do things better. And then the third myth we need to reject is thinking that time is against us. We often hear ourselves saying, you know, I'm not getting any younger, which leads us to sometimes act quickly and often unfaithfully or it causes us to do the same things over and over and over again. So we need to see that time is our friend. We need time to pause so we can evaluate and plan and listen. Today we're going to be looking at the first of three steps that will help us to make a good fresh start. Uh, next, the next couple of weeks we'll do step two and step three, but today is the first step. And first, to make sure we don't keep repeating our mistakes. We need to own our mistakes. We need to own our failures. We need to own our bad history. But owning our problems is not as easy and comfortable as blaming someone else for them, is it? Our culture has another name for it. It's called victimism. It's what happens when we blame other people for our problems. It's a way for us to explain why life hasn't worked out like we'd like it to. We've been treated unfairly. We ended up on the short end of the stick. We've been dealt a lousy hand. We're a victim. And that's how we get through life, by blaming other people for the bad things that have happened to us. Let me offer some examples. If you're late turning in a report at work, Hey, that's easy. You just say, I would have turned it in earlier, but Frank was late getting the statistics to me. If you lose your job, it's because the boss was unreasonable. He or she didn't understand me. They had it in for me. They hated me from the moment I walked into this office. If you didn't keep a promise, it's because you're too busy doing other things. You can't be expected to remember everything when you're going nonstop, if you failed to do your homework, it's because your roommate borrowed your notes or your textbook and didn't give it back in time. If you lost your temper, it's because someone provoked you. It's their fault for making you angry. If a relationship ended, it could have been, it couldn't be your fault. You're, you're such a nice person. That other person was the creep. That's all there is to it. Sound familiar? It ought to because most of us know all too well about being the victim. And the victim's battle cry is, it's not my fault. We're not always sure whose fault it is, but we certainly know it's not our fault. So if it's not us, it must be somebody else, maybe our parents. It's popular to blame our parents nowadays for lots of emotional and psychological problems. And if it's not our parents, It's probably our brothers and sisters. They never treated me right. I always was overlooked, mom liked them better. But if not our parents or siblings, the world is full of candidates. It could be our grandparents who messed us up. Maybe it was our friends that we ran around with in high school, maybe we ran with the wrong crowd and they corrupted us. Or maybe we ran with a good crowd and we ended up too good for our own good. Of course, we can always blame our husband. After all, he's probably just a melon head anyhow. Or we can blame our wife. She's far from perfect. Or maybe it's the people we work with. Yes, that's the ticket. They're nothing but a bunch of lying, no good backstabbers. You see, it goes on and on. We are always the innocent victim. And there's a reason why we're so good at this blame game. We make excuses because excuse-making is in our DNA. It's in our family tree. It's part of our spiritual bloodstream. When we pass the buck, we're only doing what our ancestors did. If we go back to the very first two people we read about in the Bible, Adam and Eve, we find that, that when they faced a problem they had to start over, they didn't own up to their failure. Instead, they blamed somebody else. When God first created human beings and placed them in the center of paradise, their only job was to be fruitful and multiply. They were to govern over the world and enjoy everything that God had created. God gave them just one rule. You must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by giving this one rule, God is making himself the boss. God is the creator. He's reminding Adam and Eve that while all things in the world are under their authority, they remain under God's authority. Well, it didn't take long for Adam and Eve to do the one thing they were told not to do. And as as soon as they did it, they knew they had done something wrong because they wanted to hide from each other and from God. And to this day, our first inclination when we do something wrong is to try to hide. We try to hide the problem, we try to cover it up in some fashion. When confronted, we often lie about it instead of telling the truth. Let me read to you from the creation story in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, "'Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden?' Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it, and if you do, you will die. (laughs) You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give to her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves, and when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees and then the Lord God spoke to the man where are you he replied I heard you walking in the garden so I hid I was afraid because I was naked who told you that you were naked the Lord God asked have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat the man replied it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So we roll the tape backward to the Garden of Eden and focus on this scene that is right after Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit. And to the untrained eye, the garden still looks like paradise. But Adam has just eaten the forbidden fruit, and a silly, guilty grin slides across his face. He knows that he's done something wrong, but he has no idea what is about to happen next. It happens so fast, he looks at Eve and notices something that he never saw before. She doesn't have any clothes on. That's a shock to him. And then he looks down and he's naked too. The thought crosses his mind, we better cover ourselves up. But where did that thought come from? It came from a mind that has just had its first encounter with sin. Adam and Eve never wore clothes before because they never knew they were naked. The shame of nakedness is the first result of the fall. You see, sin first brings shame. And with shame comes the disgrace of being uncovered. And then there was the strange sound of footsteps. Who could that be? It was the Lord walking around in the garden in the cool of the day. And instinctively, and I use that word carefully, Adam and Eve hide themselves. Why? Who told them to hide? No one had to tell them anything. You see, their guilty consciences condemn them. Disobedience is now bearing its bitter fruit, and where once they enjoyed unbroken fellowship with God, now sin has separated them from their creator. And so hiding from God is the second result of the fall. But now the truth is about to come out. When God calls out for Adam, he answers, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. There was no shame in nakedness as long as there was nothing to hide. But once sin entered the picture, Adam could not face God uncovered. Then God asked the question, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat of? And the answer The woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Classic piece of buck passing, isn't it? Blame it on the woman. And if that doesn't work, blame it on God. Minimize your guilt by making somebody else look bad. But the story isn't over. God turns to Eve and asks her, what is this that you've done? Listen to her answer. The serpent deceived me and I ate it. You know what's so tricky about these two answers? Technically, Adam and Eve both told the truth. Adam told the truth when he said that Eve gave him the fruit. Eve told the truth when she said the serpent deceived her. But both of them were making excuses as a means of avoiding personal responsibility. And as long as Adam could blame Eve, he doesn't look so bad. And as long as Eve could blame the serpent, She looks like an innocent victim. So, blaming others is the third result of the fall. And that explains a lot of things. First, it tells us that our tendency to blame others is deeply ingrained in human nature. Secondly, it tells us that left to ourselves, we'll do anything to avoid taking personal responsibility for our actions. And third, it tells us that blaming others is often nothing more than a subtle twisting of the truth in order to take the heat off of ourselves. And fourth, it tells us that without a deep working of the grace of God in our life, we will do exactly what Adam and Eve did. See, it's easier to blame our relationship issues on the dysfunction of somebody else. It's easier to say that our boss or that our teacher has it out for us, which is why we didn't succeed, why we didn't get a good grade. It's easier to blame the credit card company for outrageous interest rates as the reason we're so in debt instead of blaming it on our own spending. It's always easier to blame others, and there's a reason why that's true. We are natural born blamers. Blaming others for our problems is simply part of the human race. And it's amazing that today we continue to hide when we fail or when we make a mistake, just like Adam and Eve did. They felt shame and guilt because of their failure. They tried to hide from God and they tried hiding from each other. And God went looking for them. In his love, God didn't allow Adam and Eve to stay hidden. He went looking for them so that they could start over when he found them. And we are the offspring of Adam and Eve, so just as we try to hide when we fail, we also try to blame others when we're confronted. And it is natural for us to play the blame game when things begin to fall apart, but we need to own our part of the failure, or the failure will own us. We need to own our part of the story, or we will repeat the story again and again. The truth is, we can't blame our way into a better future. We can blame people for our problems, and we can move into the future and try to do better, but if we do that, we only take those very same problems with us. Blame sets us up for a repeat performance of our failed past. So to start over, to do things differently, to make sure this time is better than the last time, we need to own our part of the problem. And when we're willing to evaluate the situation and own our part of the problem, we begin to gain clarity. Owning our mistakes and our part of the difficult story of our lives begins to humble us so that we can make better decisions and actually do something different the next time. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So purity leads to clarity. And when we're honest about our own lives and humble ourselves, we begin to take ownership of our own story, and we begin to see God's hand at work in us. And then we can begin to see the healthy and the right decisions we need to make so that we can move forward. So I have a little exercise for all of you to do today. I want you to think about a situation in your life where you may need to start over because of some mistake, because of some failure, because of some problem. And I want you to draw a circle. We're going to call this the circle of blame. You see it on screen. The circle of blame. Now imagine that this circle contains everything every bit of everything that has contributed to the problem. And while we want to think that everything in this circle is somebody else's problem, now be honest, we do. We want to think it's all somebody else's problem, that that's there. What we need to do is ask ourselves, what percentage of this circle will we own? It may be an eighth of the circle, maybe a quarter of the circle, maybe half the circle, I don't know. It might only be a small piece of the pie that is ours to own, but owning our part will help us make a fresh start. And even when the situation we face has been caused by somebody else's behavior or dysfunction or failure, there is always a part of it that we need to own. For example, maybe we really didn't listen to God when something told us deep inside that things weren't quite right. Maybe we didn't listen to our family or to our friends who tried to warn us that the decisions we were making weren't good decisions. Maybe we stayed too long in a relationship when we knew the behaviors that we were experiencing were unhealthy and harmful. Maybe we were afraid to confront the situation and honestly deal with the problem, so we let it linger, we let it grow. Maybe we were just Too embarrassed to admit to ourselves or anybody else that there was a problem, or maybe we just didn't do our best at school or follow through the way we should have at work. You see, what part of the the circle do we need to own? Because if we don't own it, we can't learn from it. And if we just blame other people for our problems, we aren't going to be able to grow and do things differently and make better choices and wiser decisions moving forward, so we have to own our part of it. doesn't mean we own all of it. For most of us, everything in that circle is not all our fault. So we can't take responsibility for things that are not our issues. That, that can be destructive. That can, uh, can destroy our ability to do better the next time. When we say that it's all our fault, it covers up the real issues we need to deal with and it keeps us from focusing on what we need to do differently. So owning issues that aren't ours will set us up only to fail. So don't own all of it, but honestly own your piece of it. Owning our mistakes is the first step in making a fresh start. But it's an important step. Next week we're gonna learn how to rethink some of the difficult situations in our life. And then in two weeks, how to release them and to begin to find forgiveness and healing. But this week, we need to start by owning our mistakes. So next time will be better than the last time. This week, let's take that first step in making peace with our past by owning our part of it. Pray with me, will you? Father, forgive us for our whining and our complaining. Forgive us for our blaming others, for our failures and our problems instead of owning what's our fault. Help us to take responsibility for the havoc in our life and follow your wisdom. We give our lives to you, God. Our will is yours. Release us from any mess that we find ourselves in today and help us to trust you to create a new path for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.